0: Well, good morning. My name is Kyle Burkholder. I'm pastor here at Covenant Church and one of the elders that has the great privilege of leading us upon our mission and uh, plotting the course as we try to know Jesus and make him known in our community. Uh, We have been in a sermon series for the last uh, 73 years called The Way. We're almost done. We're uh, three weeks out. So we have this week, Easter, and then the, the following week, and then we will transition to something entirely different, uh, what we're going to pick up today as we jump back into the way is, is we're kind of just tracking with Jesus on his journey. We've been tracking with him uh, since before he ever started on his uh, long walk to Jerusalem, and now we find him in Jerusalem, arrested, and today uh, we're going to see him in the act of crucifixion. And so uh, what I wanted to do in Luke 23, I wanted to actually tell you the story of Simon of Cyrene. It was in my notes, and I was ready, and I was excited because there's this, this guy who who The the people compelled to take up the cross and carry it for Jesus for a time. And I want to tell you his whole story, and then I got into what I was getting into, and I thought you didn't want to be here for three hours. So um, I'm actually going to just write that out, and we'll link to it on Facebook, and so you could read all about Simon. And I had to say that out loud so I wouldn't feel burdened to tell you, because I really want to tell you about it. But instead, we're going to pick up in Luke 23, verse 32. And uh, what we're going to see is that two others, the scripture says, both criminals, were taken along with him, which is Jesus, for execution. When they got to the place called Skull Hill, they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And dividing up his clothes, they threw dice for them. And the people stood there staring at Jesus, and the ringleaders made faces, taunting. He saved others. Let's see if he can save himself. The Messiah of God, ha. The chosen, ha. Ha. The soldiers came up and poked fun at him, making a game of it. They toasted him with sour wine. So you're the king of the Jews. Save yourself. Printed over him was a a sign that said, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals hanging alongside cursed him. Some Messiah you are. Save yourself. Save us. But the other one made him shut up. He said, have you no fear of God? You're getting the same as him. We deserve this, but not him. He did nothing to deserve this. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And he said, don't worry, Jesus said, I will. Today you will join me in paradise. And by now it was noon and the whole earth became dark and the darkness was lasting three hours, a total blackout. And the curtain, the temple curtain split right down the middle. Jesus called loudly, Father, I place my life in your hands. Then he breathed this last. Today, what I want to get into with you is uh, radical forgiveness, radical forgiveness. There's a thousand things we could look at. We could go word by word and line by line and really dig into everything here. And and if you follow Jesus long enough and you go through enough Easter seasons, you're going to hear it all. Today, I want to choose to, to focus on this radical forgiveness we witness as Jesus is on the cross. And in order to do that, I want to start with some ancient history, actually. We have to go back uh, quite a long way, so far back that uh, while you live through it, you may have already forgotten about it, and so I'd like to see if you can remember the, the great toilet paper crisis of 2020. <laughs> there she is on the screen. Here she comes. Susie, you got this? There she is. No one wants to admit that that was us. That was us in 2020. When the world started shutting down and our bodies did not, and things got a little tense. You remember, I couldn't decide when I saw this picture. I was looking for the perfect picture of empty shelves, and I saw her, and I felt bad because she doesn't have a chance to defend herself. So I thought, should we pray for this woman, for her obvious medical condition, or (laughs) should we hope she had been arrested? I don't know. My family, we are Amazon auto delivery people. Uh, So our toilet paper just shows up on our doorstep. And we usually have more than we need because we subscribe and then it just shows up and I forgot to skip the month and so we got boxes of it everywhere. Not then, not in 2020. In 2020, Amazon said, I'm sorry, we are, uh, we're out. We're out of toilet paper and you're out of luck. So we gave a few rolls away while we still had lots and, and then they ran out. And, and so I was absolutely among the people who showed up at 6 a.m., to wait outside of Kroger to go get my allotted one package of nine rolls of whatever they had. I'm not a, not a super soft guy, more the strong, you know, I don't, and they said it doesn't matter what you like, you get it. One ply, eight ply, doesn't matter. If it's on, so I got mine, everybody else got theirs. Every one of us, like the 30 of us in line, got our one thing of toilet paper, self-checked out, didn't look anyone else in the eye, and left. Why? As the supply of something becomes more strained, we begin to hold on to ours more greedily, don't we? As the the supply becomes more strained, we get a little tighter with what we're willing to give away. So we have a forgiveness shortage in our culture. And this includes Christians. This is not me talking about those outside the church. This is everybody. You go down the forgiveness aisle in in the store, and it is empty. Instead, we've given up on forgiveness. We're kind of tired of that. Instead of forgiveness, we cancel Left cancels right, right cancels left. I don't know if you saw the Oscars or the, what happened after the Oscars. Will Smith he canceled Chris Rock's face. And then America promptly canceled Will Smith, right? Another challenge in 2020 that was a real one was racial unrest. In response to the racial unrest of 2020, in response to the killing of George Floyd... We had, uh, in our church, a series of groups and conversations. As a leader, I knew nothing, nothing, wasn't a good response to what was happening in our nation. So, I called black friends, black ministry leaders, the black people in our community. And I said, I don't get this in the way that you get this. I don't feel this the way that you feel this, but I also don't want to run off into something that isn't what you would have us run off into. And so we've not listened well, and so I want to listen. And so we listened. And I said, what would you have us do as a community? What would you have us do as a church? What do you want us to do? Do you want us on the streets? Do you want to, what do you want us to do? And the response from these people was, we want people to listen. We want to have relationship. We want to have conversation. We want to begin to speak about these things. And so we did. We started a a group, several groups. We uh, We read books that were challenging. We had over 60 people in one of these groups The first meeting of which had every single person on mute except two black brothers and sisters, and we said, we're here to listen and hear your story first. Now, we don't need a pat on the back for that. It's a long time coming. It's way overdue. The reality was, though, we made a choice to do a thing as a church as a result of listening and submitting to those around us who knew better and could lead us through it. People engaged deeper. We had additional groups we've had uh, people find their voice and learn to hear other voices we've learned to share in heartache together what we did is we grew in relationship and awareness and unity in doing so we also kept the gospel central because that's what they urged us to do they said whatever you do don't lose the gospel don't lose Jesus in the gospel keep that central and we'll deal with it the response was awesome it was also awkward Because uh, those who engaged were were blessed and stretched by learning things they had yet to experience in life. Some in the community weren't as happy. Some of the community called me out because we hadn't done enough. Others in the community called me out because we'd done too much. We have people who, in those groups, would say, this is nonsense, we shouldn't be doing it, I'm leaving the church. And I'd go, okay, don't let the door hit you. We had others in the community that said, you guys didn't step up when it was the time for us to step up, and those relationships have gone away too. Why? Because we live in a culture of superiority. One of the most dangerous idols we carry is this idol of superiority, that if someone doesn't think like I do, believe like I do, work problems out like I do, then there's something wrong with them, and, and therefore I can feel above, and they can stay below. Bethany Jett is the one who coined this term, idol of superiority. She, she's a writer. She says this. I'll just quote her directly. She says, Our society has reached the pinnacle of being offended by every small misstep. We're angry over the books people are reading and the fact that someone dares to disagree with the way we think. We get angry when people don't respond like we do, when they don't read what we read, when they don't vote like we vote. We get angry because we are so insecure That that may chip away at the confidence in what I believe or how I. If you don't vote that way, what's and so our insecurity comes out as anger. Our insecurity comes out as rage. Our insecurity comes out as canceling someone else because I'm not comfortable enough with them making a choice that I may not agree with. These are symptoms of the idol of superiority. We love to feel superior. We love to think I am right. We love to think I know best. Any way we can feel big and important, because if we're honest, we are small and vulnerable. We are inadequate and insecure. Any way we can feel superior, we want to feel that, because the last thing we want to actually have to encounter is the idea that we might be wrong about something. And this leads to the culture that we're in. This leads to our participation in the larger culture we're in. We are obsessed with tearing people down, and that's rooted in the secret knowledge of our own smallness. That's my conviction. You don't have to agree with that. That's not in the Bible. That's my conviction. That our culture's obsession with tearing other people down, with canceling other people, with with shaming other people, our obsession with that is rooted in our own private, secret smallness. So we don't forgive. As a culture, we don't forgive. As Christians, we don't forgive the way we should. We don't forgive because we can't afford to. We need that as leverage. We need that mistake that that person made as leverage to lift us up or lift up our cause to make ours look better. I don't need to forgive you. Why waste the good misstep of another when I can use it to step on their lifeless body to get a little higher in societal status? But what's the opposite of superiority? Okay, this is, this is starting to go dark. Like, when are we going to get to the good part of this? The a good news in here somewhere. The opposite of superiority is Humility. But outside of Sunday morning, humility isn't really a prized asset. It doesn't get you elected or promoted. It gets you stomped on. People worry when they're too forgiving that they're being seen as a doormat. But, But forgiveness has to be rooted in that sort of humility. I said superiority is lording over someone else is trying to be above them. Humility is the active attempt to get lower and under. We talked about Jesus washing feet. You don't wash feet while you lord over someone. You have to get down under them to wash the feet. But people struggle with this. Am I being a doormat? Am I allowing people to walk all over me? Is this really okay? Is forgiveness really just the allowance of evil? If I just forgive this, then where about the consequences? Am I just tolerating sin when I say I forgive somebody? Instead, I would say it this way. Forgiveness relies on a humble recognition of my own fallibility as I deal with the fall of another. Forgiveness relies on the humble recognition of my own fallibility as I deal with the fall of another. So I want to tell you in brief the story of somebody I ran across this week as I was trying to find just the perfect anecdote, just the perfect example of what this looks like. So I want to introduce you to a man named Jerome Williams from Florida. Jerome Williams is pictured here. That's his uh, nine-year-old daughter, in the I have little ears in the room, so I'll try to clean it up a little bit. Jerome Williams' nine-year-old girl was inappropriately assaulted, had the life taken from her, and was then disposed of in a suitcase pushed off a causeway in Florida. I've got a nine-year-old girl. This is the worst nightmare of a parent. That the most vulnerable thing you have, the one person in your life that can't care for themselves, that can't quite protect themselves, that somehow this is the result. They found the person who did these monstrous things. And at the sentencing hearing, because the evidence was clear, the killer got the death sentence. And Jerome Williams, Mr. Williams, spoke directly to his child's murderer. I'm just going to quote him so you can look at him, because you didn't know it when I put his picture up there, but that's what compassion looks like. Here's what he says. Addressing his killer, he says, I'm not like everybody else. I recognize I've been where you've been. I'm still supposed to be where you're at, but God set me free. That's what he'll do for you. He may not release you physically, but spiritually he will. Don't look at this as your life being over. He said, you did wrong, and your mistakes are worse than others. So when you get back to your cell, you get on your knees, and you pray harder than you've ever prayed in your life, and you ask for his forgiveness. I give you mine. I hold no will ill towards you. Jerome Williams looks at the murderer of his child and says, I love you because you are a child of God. And he says, but don't play with that. Because if you play with that, he'll destroy you. I don't think I'd have said that. I actually don't think I'd have had the courage to go and look him in the eye. And yet Jerome Williams says, I've been where you've been. I know what it means to fall short. I know what it means. He doesn't say it's all good. He goes, hey, don't worry about it. He doesn't say that. He says, you're on the path of destruction. And he also says, and I love you because you're a child of God. That's wild humility. That's where forgiveness lies. Forgiveness lies in Jerome Williams being able to look at somebody who's done heinous, monstrous things and say, but for the grace of God, go I, I have actually been in your shoes. Maybe not where you're at, but I know that path. And when we fail to forgive, it's because we fail to put ourselves on the path of another. We fail to recognize our own fallibility. We fail to get into a spot where we go, you know what, I've made some decisions that are a little shaky in my life too. So Jerome Williams recognizes his own fallen nature. He remembers his own forgiveness. He extends that same love and forgiveness to another. He's bringing forth Luke 7, he who has been forgiven much, love much. He who has been forgiven much, he loves much. Those of us who have been forgiven, we learn to love out of the overabundance of our forgiveness. The overflow of the forgiveness we've experienced, we learn that, hey, this isn't even mine to give. It's just coming at me. When we have something in abundance, whether it's toilet paper in 2022 or forgiveness, we all of a sudden can afford to give it away. We can afford to love someone who has done monstrous things. We can afford to release the stone we hold in our hands. John 8, the people catch a woman in adultery. They bring her to Jesus. He's drawing in the dirt, and what does he say? Let the one among you who has no sin cast the first stone. Let the one among you who has no sin cast the first stone, he says. One by one, starting with the oldest, they drop their stones. What happened there? Jesus forced them all to recognize their own flawed humanity before they condemned her for hers. Jesus recognizes that they haven't quite thought that through. And so he says, hey, by the way, check yourself. Jesus invites us to humbly forgive as well. And part of this is recognizing that the path to forgiveness begins when we realize what we are not responsible for. We're control freak nation. And that's getting in the way of forgiveness. The path to forgiveness begins when we realize what we are not responsible for. When we struggle to forgive, I, I think it's actually a lack of trust. Because we say, what about the consequences? What about justice? What? And we're going to get there. We're going to come back to that. said it requires humility and strength to forgive. Humility and strength. Compassion rooted in confidence in a judge that's greater than ourselves. In Luke 23, 34, Jesus prayed. We, we saw it. We read it. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So humble forgiveness is rooted in compassion and pity. We don't like to say the word pity, but I've said it before. I'll keep saying it. This is the same word in Scripture, compassion and pity. One is rooted in the other. What it means is finding someone in their narrative, being willing to get into somebody else's context for a minute. The key to Jerome Williams' forgiveness is in his opening statement. I've been there. I should still be there. But for God, I would still be where you are. What did he do? He decided to walk in the killer's shoes for a minute. He decided to find himself in the story of another person for a minute. That's called compassion. The root word that we get our word for compassion comes from Latin. The Latin for compati simply means to suffer with. That's what that means. So compassion isn't that person who's real soft-hearted and sweet to somebody and brings you cookies. That's sweet. I like the cookies. Compassion is when somebody goes through a tough time and they'll go sit in the ashes with them and they'll go say, I'm going to suffer with you. I'm going to take your suffering on. I'm going to get into your shoes. I'm going to walk in your life. I will suffer with you. That's compassion. And I would argue that we cannot forgive unless we get inside the suffering of another person. When somebody has wronged you and you feel it, you feel that, "Mm." when they've wronged you, You don't forgive until you get inside of their suffering, until you understand where it's coming from, until you begin to see them as a human who's flawed and failing just like you. Until you get in their story, until you experience their reality, you don't get the fullness of forgiveness until you get inside those things. So come back to Jesus. Jesus comes to earth to be with us, to experience our reality, to be hungry and sad, to laugh until he cried, to feel lonely and abandoned and angry too. Jesus is compassion. Jesus comes to suffer with. And then as he's suffering, he says, Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And for some people, this is hard. For some people, this is where we, we hit the wall, we hit the hurdle, and we go, I just don't know. Je- sure, Jesus can forgive that way, but I don't know if I can forgive that way. I need them to know what they're doing. So I'm going to read them the riot act, make sure they feel the pain and suffering. And then maybe if they're sorry enough later, I'll forgive them. How can Jesus just release those who have tortured and killed him unjustly? How can Jesus just do that? I said earlier it's about trust. If we trust that there is a just God if we trust that there's a God in heaven who will sort it all out in eternity, if we, if we trust that there is a God who believes in, and cares about, who invented justice, if we believe that and we trust in that God, then we can forgive. Then we can live lightly and freely. Then we can release what isn't ours to own because we trust that God has that. But if I don't trust God to make it right, well then, God has built justice into us. We want to see justice done. And if if I don't trust God to make it, or if I don't trust God to take care of justice, then what do I do? I take justice on for myself. I want to even the scales. The reason people load weapons and go and take vengeance is because justice in them wants to even the scales for something wrong. Luke records Jesus' final words there that we read as, Father, I place my life in your hands. Father, I place my life in your hands. Jesus' life is in the hands of God the Father. The justice that Jesus seeks is in the same place. Jesus, in his compassion, got into our story, suffered with us in order to forgive us, And so forgiveness is then found in humility. When we look at the life of Christ, we go, how does he forgive like that? His forgiveness is rooted in a radical humility, which is a trust in God's strength and God's justice and God's power and God's goodness and his righteousness. And it's only possible if I believe at the end of the day that God is going to deal with the wicked. If I believe that at the end of the day, God will not leave something unequal. God will not leave something inequitable. God will make things right. God will bring things to level. God will restore wholeness. When, when we look back at Genesis, we see wholeness was broken. Shalom, wholeness, peace, wholeness, designed perfection was broken. And the rest of eternity is God putting wholeness back together. And so we look around the world and all we see is brokenness, 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 brokenness. And we have to look at a different plane. We're looking at a, a human plane. If we look at a spiritual plane, we see something different is happening. That God is restoring wholeness. God is putting things back together. God is righting wrongs, and we miss it. And we go, "Man, I don't even know if God's here. I don't even go, God, is, is, is he active? Is he hear me, Lord? Take it in my own hands. i take care of it myself. I'm cutting this person out, and then we use words that like new psycho babble. We use all kinds of words, all kinds of wrong. I just have good boundaries. Unforgiveness is not a good boundary. Can I say that? Unforgiveness is not a good boundary. If you want to forgive someone, restore someone, and then create a boundary, awesome. But we live in a world where we want to use psychology, and we want to use these kind of things as tools to allow us out of what God has called us to do, which is to take on the suffering of another and forgive them. And then leave the ultimate judge to sort the punishment and consequences out. The path to forgiveness begins when we realize what we are not responsible for. You don't have to set the scales of humanity right. You don't have to make sure that someone gets their comeuppance. What you have to do is root yourself in God's perfect justice to release the need to dispense revenge. And only when you release the need to dispense revenge can you take hold of the display of love. You can only hold one thing at a time. You can hold on to the need to dispense revenge or you can let that go and take on to the life that Christ has given you. So we look at Jesus and we see what it means to lay down our lives, to lay down the chase for superiority, the secret idol that we don't even know we're chasing. We begin to learn what it means to walk the path of another. And then in compassion, we begin to measure our own failings we begin to remember how much we've been forgiven, and then and only then we begin to see what it means to truly forgive. So the questions for you today, and the heaviness in the week before we celebrate a resurrection, who are you holding out on forgiving? Who in your life, whether big and public or small and private, Are you holding out unforgiving? Are you waiting for the time to avenge? Are you resenting? Who has you in the prison of resentment? And then where can you trust God to be God? Where can you trust God to be God? Where can you trust God to make things right? Where can you trust God to make things whole? Where can you trust God to redeem and restore and renew Where can you lean into his righteousness and then release the resentment that's holding you hostage? Because you only take hold of the fullness of life that Jesus came to bring when you release the things that only he can carry. You only take hold of the fullness of life that Jesus came to bring when you release the things that only he can carry. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us where we struggle to forgive others. Father, in the the depths of our hearts, we, we mean well, we intend well, we aim the right direction, and yet, Lord, we do fall short. Father, my prayer today is that as a community, we would see what Jesus has done, that we would see the radical forgiveness of Jesus and then we would find our own path in that direction. Lord, that we would trust your justice, we would trust your righteousness. We would inexplicably, in a way the world will never understand, practice radical forgiveness and compassion. Lord, give us the desire to walk with others in suffering, to join others in their trial, so that not only can we understand, but Lord, that we might forgive. Father, for those of us who are blinded to our own reality, who don't seem to have the ability to account for how much we've been forgiven, God, open our eyes to just how deep your forgiveness is for us. And then, Father, let this community, starting in this body in this congregation, but but overflowing into the communities that we live in and we work in, let, let there be a wave of radical forgiveness and reconciliation Lord, may compassion start here and flow into lives. Father, our prayer is that when we practice what you practice, maybe those that are around us will see you in it, will find you in it, will know you in it, and they'll know the forgiveness we know. So, Father, thank you for the cross, for all that we have to learn and all that we have to walk in. We love you. Amen. Hi again just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect if you're ready to be known we'd love to know you and we hope you'll join us soon every sunday in person or online thanks for listening